I'm Tavis Smiley. You tuned in to KBLA Talk 1580, and we're glad about it. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. Let me mention right quick, um, tomorrow, Tuesday, the defense in the USA versus uh, MRT case uh, begins. So you have been following this, every, of course, every day. I hope you've been following it every day at 435. Uh, we are the only place in town where every single day you can get an update on what happened inside the courtroom. Ariva Martin in real time, uh, 435 every day. Ariva is in dialogue with our justice correspondent, uh, Dion Raymond, a uh, brilliant attorney. So the two of them uh, every day at 435 are bringing you up to speed on what happened in the courtroom. As you probably know by now, uh, tuning in every day, I hope, at 435. Um, the prosecution rested on Friday. Uh, tomorrow, court is closed today, Monday, but tomorrow, uh, Mark Ridley Thomas, after almost two years now, will finally get a chance to put on his case. The defense uh, begins tomorrow. We will see later in this week if MRT actually takes the stand. That's the question. That's what I'm curious about, what we're all watching, uh, to see whether or not he, he will, in fact, take the stand in this case. He has a constitutional right to not take the stand, and oftentimes in cases like these, defendants do not, in fact, take the stand. We will see um, tomorrow um, what the defense has to say uh, tomorrow and moving forward for the rest of this week. I am certain and uh, keep our eye on whether or not uh, MRT ultimately decides to take the stand in this case himself. Uh, but again, in case you've um, uh, not been following it, uh, now we're in the uh, we're in the uh, the sweet spot, as they say. The defense finally uh, begins putting on their evidence in this high-profile case tomorrow. Once again, every day, 4:35 p.m. Make sure you tune into Ariva Martin in real time for your daily download on the case of USA v MRT. In this hour. Did the pharmaceutical industry intentionally target white consumers and doctors to prescribe pain medication while framing whites as being at low risk for addiction? Dr. Helena Hansen joins us in this hour to discuss the book, White Out, How Racial Capitalism Changed the Color of Opioids in America. I'm delighted to have Dr. Hansen on for the hour. Dr. Hansen, how are you today? Hi, thank you. I'm doing well. How about you? If I complained, I'd be an ingrate. I am delighted to have you on for the hour. Uh, there's a lot of this thank book. You. There's a lot to talk about. And uh, thank you for the research. Uh, and thank you for the writing. And thank you for the opportunity to interrogate you uh, about the text. Let me start Let me start with this to make sure we're on thank the same page. Thank you for pa- having me. My great honor. Thank you. Um, let me start with this. Uh, so we're on the same page about this. When you say racial capitalism and how it changed the color of opioids in America, that phrase, racial capitalism, what do you mean by that exactly? Exactly. So we're on the same page. We'll go from there. Sure. So racial capitalism is um, it's a term that was coined in the 80s uh, by Cedric Robinson. He was a, a black American political theorist, mm-hmm. and he was really going back a century to W.E.B. Du Bois and um, C.L.R. James, who wrote about the fact that the very basis of the American economy is racial capitalism. You know, it's a story that we all know well, that profits from the founding of this country have been extracted from the bodies, the labor of Africans, um, but also, you know, extracted land from Native Americans. And the racial hierarchy that enabled all of that was the foundation for the, um, you know, the Industrial Revolution and the immense accumulation of capital in our country. What we write about in the book is the next phase of racial capitalism, which has to do not only with extraction of labor and land, that that story continues, Mm -hmm. 
but a, a story that we carefully uncovered through research that spanned a decade of um, biotech and pharma. And, you know, that is a, an enormous segment of our economy. So mm-hmm. biotech, pharma, healthcare industries combined make up the single largest driver of our economy, the single largest sector. Uh, we spend almost 20% of our gross domestic, domestic product on healthcare and biotech and pharma. So it's a big, big economic engine. Mm-hmm. And what we uncovered was it's not only the black and brown bodies upon which uh, capital extraction rests, but it's also the way that white consumer markets are uh, segmented and um, targeted with new consum- newly patented consumable products, um, especially new healthcare devices and medications that companies spend um, a lot of money marketing, and they, they have a very short window of several years after the patent that they hold on the product, um, the years on, in which the patent that they hold on a given new product gives them exclusive rights to market the product. They are actively targeting white and usually insured, better off, um, healthcare consumers with mm. those products. So what most stories of the quote-unquote opioid crisis of the last couple of decades omit is the way that the whiteness of the imagined consumer was explicitly um, defined, targeted, used by the pharma companies that came up with OxyContin and sister products in the mid-90s mm. to get around regulatory um, regulation, you know, regulatory constraints sure. on their marketing. Uh, you know, the, they sold the image of the quote-unquote trustworthy coded language for white patient through um, marketing materials that showed innocent-looking white consumers. Uh, Prescribers had long been shown, meaning doctors and some nurse practitioners that are licensed to prescribe medications, um, for they'd they'd long been shown to preferentially prescribe pain medication to white patients Mm -hmm. um, and to avoid prescribing opioids and other narcotics for pain to black and brown patients, even when the condition in question, like fractured long bones, um, really painful fractures are in question. And, you know, for the past century, um, medical school, medical schools have even taught that black patients are less likely to experience sure, pain. Sure. Um, it's been the, the foundation for a lot of experimentation that's happened over the past couple of centuries on black patients. So there, there's there's a whole history right. to how we came to the opioid moment of the, the mid-90s in which the innocent white patient enabled the companies to get around regulation mm. and also were the primary target for um, for the new drugs. All right. They We've also la- led everyone... I'm sorry. Go the, ahead. The finish your last point. They've also done... Finish that last point. I'm sorry. Oh no! It's it, it's also that um, beyond beyond the regula- regulation, um, they actually created the conditions knowingly these pharmaceutical companies for a whole secondary market, okay. right? And then the response to the overdose and the secondary non medical market was a medicalized re- response. It wasn't the typical prohibitionist, prohibitionist harsh 
punitive drug policy that mm-hmm. prior overdose epidemics have triggered. Yeah. Um, and so I think you're about to answer, uh, ask no. me a follow-up question. No, I, I can no, expand well, on that. Well, trust me, I got a whole bunch of follow-ups. I got an hour to do this. So yeah, I'm not, I'm going to ask you one follow-up. I got a whole bunch of follow-ups to ask you. Uh, I didn't want to interrupt because I wanted you to lay the foundation. Uh, I think the audience gets it um, now. Uh, they get what this book is about. It's called Whiteout. How Racial Capitalism Changed the Color of Opioids in America. Now that we're on the same page about racial capitalism and the impact and effect it had on uh, changing the color of opioids in America, now we got a foundation laid. We can jump from here. And uh, and again, I've got more than one follow-up. I've got a, I've got a litany of them, and we're going to make the most of this hour with Dr. Helena Hansen when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15. Dr. Helena Hansen is one of the authors of the new book, Whiteout, How Racial Capitalism Changed the Color of Opioids in America. Uh, now to the follow-ups. <laughs> Let me start with this. Um, and I'm not naive in asking this, but I want to get your take on this. Um, you mentioned earlier that biotech and pharma are the single largest uh, sector in our society. Indeed, they are. They drive a, a great deal uh, of revenue generation in this country. Uh, let me just start with the basics. How did bio, biotech and pharma become such big business in America? How'd that happen? Oh, well, that, that's a, a great and very large question. Um, I want to hone in on the racial capitalist part of it. Sure. Because I began to outline before how academic medicine as a whole, which is, has been historically the place where a lot of the new biotech and uh, pharmaceuticals are developed, really rests on a system of not only racial capitalism, but racial experimentation mm-hmm. and uh, racialized access to health care. So it's no mistake that most of the medical schools across the country, um, most of our medical schools across the country, are located in poor black and brown neighborhoods. That's not an accident. Mm. They needed to have access to populations that they could experiment on. You know, mm. that, and we've seen that story in so many different ways. Um, but I, I, I want to highlight that to this day, academic medical schools and the research that happens there really rests on access to these populations, first to test new drugs and devices, and in exchange for that, also offering certain kinds of access to low-cost health care that these populations don't otherwise have. So the fact that we don't have universal health care, we don't have a health care system that reaches black and brown communities, that they've been explicitly excluded from a very privatized uh, profit-based healthcare system in this country, it enables the very system of experimentation testing that we have that then develops products that are only affordable to affluent white markets. Mm. In the case of opioids, it was not only affluent white markets, but it was also um, rural and mining communities of white people who were insured um, with certain kinds of um, workers' compensation insurance and who went to doctors regularly for pain-related complaints. So that that was one other population of white consumers that the opioid companies targeted from the beginning. Um, but the idea is that there, the, the opioid moment of the mid-90s when um, 
when the manufacturers like Purdue Pharma got FDA approval to market a new type of opioid embedded in a slow-release capsule as a minimally addictive pain reliever for moderate pain like lower back pain. This was a revolution in opioid marketing with opioids before that having been restricted to very severe post-surgical pain or cancer pain. You know, They were able to open an enormous market because they were able to get approval to go directly to primary care doctors in white, largely white communities both affluent suburban white communities and the mining and rural towns where I just mentioned there's a population of people with workers' comp insurance that would pay for these expensive new products. So they're building on a whole century plus of uh, racialized experimentation, pharma and biotech development that then pivots and sells very very high-cost products to... Uh, insured, well-insured white patients let within me, let, a healthcare system that's stratified that way. Let me let me let me cut in here um, because I, you mm-hmm. you've said something here now, uh, Doctor Hanson, that that I had never processed, and I, and I sometimes I, <clears throat> sometimes I, I I get shocked at things I hear on this program because it it seems so obvious, and yet I never processed it in that way. I've traveled all across this country over the course of my career. And you're absolutely right. And I never really thought about it in that way. I never thought about the location of these medical schools and the proximity of these medical schools to a community that they want to test and to try things out on. And then when they figure out what works and what doesn't work, then they uh, raise the price of these medicines (laughs) and sell them Mm -hmm. uh, to affluent white folk who can afford them. Hence, an, an opioid epidemic. But I, I had never, ever thought about the, 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 the specific location of most medical schools in this country. That's arresting for me. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I want to do is just situate your question, which was spot on, about how our pharma and biotech in- industries got to be so large mm-hmm. and the healthcare industries in general got to be so large in this country. Um, when it comes to opioids, we are less than 5% of the world's population in the U.S. We consume over 80% of the world's opioids. So that, for one, puts things in perspective. But the other thing is that we spend the most per capita in this country on health care of any country in the entire world. Uh, And, of course, that's unevenly spent. (laughs) That's spent by, you know, the well-insured, largely white um, segment of our population, but mm. we spend the most per capita, we get the worst health outcomes of any industrialized nation. So when you compare the U.S. to our 17 peer countries around the world, we come out at the bottom in terms of health outcomes. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that rests on the the very racialized, for-profit and privatized healthcare system that we have. Yeah. Every other country has some form of universal health care or government-supported health care that expands access. We don't have that, and what it does is it leaves black and brown low-income communities vulnerable to not only lack of access, but when we get access, it's really through research studies, it's through medical schools, where we then also have to pay for those services yeah. with participation in studies with their bodies. Let me let me interrogate the marketing strategy. Now that I'm I'm I'm, mm-hmm. I'm starting to get my balance back I, again. I was struck by that that point about the location of these medical schools and their proximity to people of color uh, as a, sort of a. Uh, lab rats, if you will. That's my phrase, not yours. Um, but but this marketing strategy fascinates me as well, because I am curious to learn more about the ways in which uh, biotech and pharma decide which communities they are going to market certain products to. 
Um, you talked earlier about preferential prescription. We'll get to that in a second here. But tell me a bit more about the ways in which they, the industry, biotech, big pharma, know exactly what they intend to do, and they will market a particular product to a particular community. Tell me about their marketing strategies. Yeah, so what I learned in a, a follow-up study to my opioid study is that the opioids, you know, the Oxycontins and sister products of the 90s fell into a pattern that applies to most, but not all, new pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. And that is that the companies know very well who the consumers are, who within our very racially stratified and capitalist healthcare system can afford the new products that are under patent. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, mo the most common segment is going to be well-insured white populations. Mm -hmm. That is the most common initial target for a new product. As that product has been on the market for, you know, five, ten years, whatever the life of the patent exclusivity is that the company holds on it before it can go generic and com competing companies can manufacture. Mm -hmm. As the, the life of that, pat that patent starts to expire, then they start to diversify. They look for new areas where they can market their drug. Often that involves going to publicly insured populations. Those, those people are lower income. They're more likely to be black and brown patients. So their marketing strategy pivots. And when the place where I left off uh, just before our break was in talking about the follow-up to the opioid crisis that was so obviously unfolding by the late 1990s after the deregulation and aggressive marketing of OxyContin and sister products. So if you go to the congressional record, there was a debate going on about what to do about the suburban, quote-unquote, suburban youth opioid crisis. Sure. And that was coded language for white populations. Mm -hmm. um, and they ended up legalizing another opioid, buprenorphine, for long-term maintenance treatment of people who are opioid addicted. That's a, a, buprenorphine is otherwise known as Suboxone. This was a huge shift in drug policy. You know, if you just think 10 years before that to crack cocaine, there's no mention of medical treatment for people with crack cocaine dependence. That was not a part of the, the conversation. Mm -hmm. It was all about, it was all about cracking down. It was all about policing and incarceration and sentencing. Uh, and if you look 20 years before that, the heroin crisis, quote unquote, of the inner cities in the United States on the heat that was being blamed, um, the heroin crisis was being blamed uh, for starting the race riots mm -hmm. across the country as, you know, unemployed black and brown youth rose up. Um, and so it was an epidemic of crime. It was not a medical public health epidemic requiring treatment. But the closest that the heroin crisis of the 60s to early 70s came to being medicalized was methadone. And so methadone itself, because it was rolled out under President Nixon as his primary we uh, weapon in his war on drugs, was associated with black and brown people. It was a, it was a pharmaceutical, but mm -hmm. it was restricted directly by the DEA. It required daily observed dosing in clinic by a nurse. Um, it was extremely restricted to the point where it was semi-criminalized. Methadone clinics to this day are generally not located within the parent hospital or clinic. They're usually located far off-site in low-income neighborhoods that haven't rallied to get them shut out of the neighborhood, uh, even in trailers. You know, methadone mm -hmm. clinics are often located in trailers. So it's a, it's a racialized um, kind of response to opioid dependence. And by the time that the suburban 
opioid crisis was being debated by Congress in the late 90s. You can look at the congressional record and read that they're saying methadone is inappropriate for the suburban youth. Mm. We need a new system. Mm. So what they did was they legalized after 80 years of prohibition on doctors prescribing opioids to people addicted to opioids They in private offices. They legalized private office treatment of opioid addiction with buprenorphine slash suboxone. The, the clientele was a white, affluent, well-insured clientele. From the moment it was legalized and FDA approved, the, um, the, the data bore it out that 91%, two years after approval, 91% of buprenorphine patients, suboxone patients were white, over half of them college-educated, over half of them uh, employed at baseline when they came in for treatment. And then two decades later, as of 2019, White Americans with opioid use disorder, three to four times as black Americans with opioid use disorder to be prescribed suboxone as opposed to having mm. any other kind of response. So it's a very clear pattern in terms of who was marketed to no. and what the response was in drug policy. Nope, I hear your point loud and clear about that secondary market that they created. Um, it makes it makes perfect sense. Um, I'm watching my clock. I've got two minutes before news, traffic, and sports. Let me tee this up. We can start it now. We'll continue on the other side. Um, but I'm curious to learn more about this time period, um, this, this, this very certain time period where company X, Y, or Z has an exclusive on the patent that they have, but at a certain mm-hmm. point, it's going to be opened up uh, for uh, generic uh, production of, of, the, of the, the, the medication, whatever it might be. So there, there's a particular goal they have in that short window where only they can push this product out. Marketing-wise, what is their goal? Oh, in that beginning time period. In that time period, yes. Yeah, and so up until the end, their goal is to sell as much of the product as at at a a high price as possible. Exactly. Right? And and the way that racial capitalism comes into this is that we then can predict who the consumer is. Mm -hmm. And that's based upon layer upon layer of racial capitalism in our our system. I mentioned the fact that we are the only industrialized nation that has the level of profit drivenness of our healthcare system. The fact that I don't know how many hundreds of millions of uninsured we're up to now. Um, And because of our very profit driven system and the foundation of our economy being racial hierarchy, we know who is uninsured. We know who yeah. has who doesn't have access to the new medications and the new technologies. So it's a, it's a natural, but it yeah. gets more interesting and complicated because as that patent runs out, the company needs to open up new new markets, and that's when they start going for volume rather than the right, hold, price on each hold that, unit. Hold, hold that thought. Hold that thought. Um, we're going to come to that to the volume part. So they've got it. They got a short window of time. They got to sell this stuff as fast as they can. They target a particular audience. They market to that audience. They make all the money they can, and then when the patent runs out, and now they're open to generic competition. They pivot and they start targeting other people, and now it's about volume. Uh, we're talking uh, in this hour with Dr. Helena Hanson uh, about how whiteness, how whiteness drove the opioid crisis. We talk about it, uh, have talked about it on this program and, and beyond, uh, about the impact that the opioid crisis had on white folk. This is a different argument. We're talking now about how whiteness drove the opioid crisis. The book is called White Out, How Racial Capitalism Changed the Color of Opioids in America. More with our guest, Dr. Helena Hansen, when we come forward after news, traffic, and sports. You're listening to KBLA Talk 15. 
Our guest in this hour is Dr. Helena Hansen. I'm Tavis Smiley, uh, continuing our conversation on KBLA Talk with Janady about her book, um, of which she's one of the authors, White Out, How Racial Capitalism Changed the Color of Opioids in America. Before news traffic and sports, I'd ask her uh, about this period of time where these uh, uh, biotech firms, big pharma, uh, have a patent on a particular uh, medication, particular product, uh, and what their end and aim is during the time frame where they have this patent alone. At a certain point, um, they, uh, uh, the, the rules of the game change, and they are open to uh, competition from those who are producing generic versions of whatever drug they have patented. Um, so they have a particular uh, goal in mind um, in, in those number of years to sell as much as they can to a particular audience. And then um, they sort of pivot. And, Dr. Hansen, you were telling me about what happens when they pivot. Oh, yes. I was talking about the pivot to publicly insured people mm-hmm. and to a bigger a bigger market volume, with a volume, lower volume, price yeah. range. Yeah, volume. What I want to highlight, though, is that when it comes to opioids and narcotics over the past couple of decades, we've seen a mirroring of that in non-medical, um, illegal, for lack of a better word, markets. So when when Purdue Pharma and the other companies that came in to cash in on the new generation of opioids and slow-release capsules mm-hmm. like OxyContin, when they um, saw that the regulations were changing, policy was changing, and they were no longer going to be able to sell their patented products in the same way and as aggressively because they were linked to overdose, they... Um, First of all, they pivoted to tamper-resistant formulations and other formulations to try to get ahead, and part of that was putting out the image that these tamper-resistant formulations were going to keep them ahead of the the urban, quote-unquote, non-white street markets that mm-hmm. were the feared spillover markets. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was clearly a move to also to bring safer products to the white consumers that they originally targeted and that they conveyed to the regulators and to Congress were, were their clientele. These were trustworthy patients who weren't intentionally misusing opioids. So that was their first move. And then on the other hand, public policymakers, rather than clamping down and um, increasing surveillance, arrests, and, and sentencing of people who were using as well as selling non-medically this new genera- generation, generation, generation of opioids, what they did because because that kind of response was not going to be politically supported by uh, white voters. That kind of criminalizing response that had been the go-to for yep. populations in the past sure. that had been black and brown. They developed this whole new medical tier of response, and that centered around yet another marketable pharmaceutical. So, so, so what, in what ways then do we, do you, indict the body politic for aiding and abetting um, this crisis, this opioid crisis in white? So, okay, so I think the bottom line that I give to audiences, including including white audiences, is that racial capitalism is the foundation for the harms that all, uh, basically every racial group in the United States has sustained from this. Um, and this is where, including white people. So, you know, the bottom line is that racial carp- capitalism also harms white people. That's mm-hmm. what's so unique about this story. But it actually, if you look closely, plays out in other arenas. Um, what I was going to say, though, about the public policy response is that not only did we, as a nation, create this separate medicalized tier of treatment for people who had the resources to get it and who were being targeted by the manufacturers, so mm-hmm. treatment by private doctors with Suboxone, otherwise known as buprenorphine, for that 
that segment of the population, I mentioned the statistics with white people three to four times as likely as black people who have opioid use disorder to get offered buprenorphine, and with black and brown people being continuing to be incarcerated at high rates based on drug policies. Um, not only did that happen, but what went along with that, too, was a, a shift so that uh, prescribers were also targeted for surveillance. There was a, a, a replacement of the first generation of these slow-release um, opioid capsules with mm-hmm. tamper-resistant formulations, and at the same time, prescription drug monitoring programs that that surveilled doctors and pharmacists and um, actually left them vulnerable to loss of license and prosecution if they didn't check databases to see that their patients weren't getting prescriptions elsewhere. Uh, those were the kinds of responses that were enacted. What that did was it cut down on the, the supplies of the pharmaceutical-grade opioids that had been flooding the markets in white communities um, because of the deregulation of OxyContin and sister products. So those those streams of prescription opioids were shut down, and the secondary markets, you know, non-medical use by people to whom maybe up. it wasn't yeah. prescribed, sure. um, there were huge populations of people who are now opioid dependent. Let you me, know, the, the prescribing rate was 10 times within five years. It was 10 times opioid yeah. prescribing the rate that it was before this marketing happened. But what, what when the supplies of these prescription opioids were clamped down because of prescription drug monitoring programs, tamper-resistant formulations, then heroin markets were opened up in these areas because mm-hmm. heroin cartels clearly saw the opportunity in it. So that was the second wave of the opioid crisis, followed by the third wave of the opioid crisis, which was fentanyl, a much more compact, it was, it's 100 times as potent as heroin, it's much easier to smuggle, you only need a hundredth the volume of fentanyl as heroin, and we're talking now about not only major port cities like New York or L.A., where it's easy to get bulky heroin in, but we're talking about small-town, mm. Rust Belt, America, yeah. all over the country, fentanyl. Let me- and, and then now followed by poly substance with stimulants causing overdose as well. Yeah. So I let, can tell the racial story of that, but let me ask, let me let you yeah. ask your question. Thank you. <laughs> let me let me get back to these to these prescribers. We we've talked uh, for the most part in this conversation um, about the ways that uh, big pharma targeted a particular uh, section of our population, uh, obviously white people. Um, but it wasn't just it wasn't just consumers. They were targeting prescribers as well. They were uh, targeting mm-hmm. doctors as well. Tell me about that part of the story. Okay, so I, I I think we touched on that before the break, which is American doctors who are largely white, <laughs> due to our segregated medical education system, um, have long been shown to, number one, believe that black and brown patients are less susceptible to pain, right, right. and also believe that black and brown patients are much more likely to divert narcotics like opioids. So they're much less likely to prescribe narcotics, and particularly opioids, to black and brown patients, even when those patients present with very obvious painful conditions like long, burn, long bone fracture. And there's a whole history to that with medical schools, as I mentioned, having taught earlier in the century that black and brown people black and brown people are less susceptible to pain. And by the way, that was an, a good justification for all the experimentation that happened on black and brown populations at medical schools across the country, you know, a century uh, and more before. So that was a belief system that not only was ingrained in medical education earlier in the century, but continues into this 
new millennium, mm. despite the fact that medical schools don't formally teach that anymore. As, as recently as a few years ago, uh, physicians who are surveyed about perceptions of pain have said that a significant number have said that they don't believe black and brown patients are sensitive to pain. So those things together, you know, the, the pharmaceutical companies knew that that was the belief system sure. of prescribers. Sure. They also knew that the public at large had that kind of belief system, that uh, black and brown patients are more likely to divert. Yeah. Let me let me ask you um, about something else you raised that we didn't get a chance to unpack, but I want to ask you right quick. And that is yeah. uh, about this notion of preferential prescription. And I'm not talking just about on opioids. That's what we're talking about mostly in this mm-hmm. our opioids. But this, this, this notion of preferential prescription in this country. Talk about that, please. Uh, so, you know, I think if you look at other kinds of pharmaceuticals, it's very clear that the higher risk uh, medications that have certain other kinds of um, side effects that might be desirable in black and brown patients mm-hmm. are overprescribed there. Mm-hmm. And then other new patented products that have advantages that the ones that black and brown patients have access to aren't um, aren't targeting them. So, for example, I'll give you an example. I'm a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And another study that I have done is of the use of second-generation antipsychotics um, by race mm-hmm. and class. So it turns out that there are certain kinds of antipsychotics that are used for both um, schizophrenia and psychotic disorders and mood disorders like bipolar mm-hmm. um, that cause many fewer side effects and are much less sedating. The new gen- There's a new generation of second-generation antipsychotics, the newer ones, the newly patent ones, the expensive ones. They don't cause the weight gain. Right. They, they don't cause the over-sedation because they don't cause weight gain. They also don't cause diabetes at the same rates as the older ones, the older antipsychotics. And when you look at who is getting which medication, there's a clear pattern whereby black and brown patients are getting the older generation antipsychotics. Based on my studies of how these decisions are made on the wards, there's a lot more to it than simply the fact that the older generation antipsychotics are cheaper, maybe easier for the public insurance to to get public insurance to cover. Mm-hmm. There's also an aspect of when patients show up on the wards with a psychiatric condition, the black and brown patients overwhelmingly the focus is on sedating them, mm-hmm. keeping them calm. The perception mm-hmm. is that they're violent and mm-hmm. dangerous, mm-hmm. despite the risks of diabetes from these medications. Um, and then when white patients come in with these conditions, the emphasis on, is on keeping them free of diabetes, weight gain, these other side effects, and they're not seen as dangerous in the same way. And this also plays out with, with ADHD um, and behavioral disruption. So it turns out that these antipsychotics that are very sedating are overused in black and brown school children, yeah. much more frequently used there, and that stimulants that are really the first-line treatment for attention deficit disorder, and that also they not only do they not sedate the student, but they enhance, they improve the student's educational performance, that's disproportionately prescribed to white children. Yeah. Sadly, sadly, none of this, uh, none of this uh, I find surprising, uh, but it is... Uh it's always uh, not surprising, but shocking to hear. You know, not not surprised by it, but but shocked by it nonetheless. Even though we know uh, that these uh, disproportionate realities exist uh, as a part of our life in this country. More with Dr. Hanson when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15. Dr. Hanson, I'm I'm wondering if um, you think there are lessons um, that have been learned about the ways in which 
um, this community, this community of uh, white fellow citizens was targeted by this opioid epidemic? Are, are there lessons that we have learned or do you, you expect in the years to come, given the way racial capitalism works, we'll see more of this uh, targeting, as it were? Well, this is a dynamic that is deeply ingrained in our economic and social system. Mm -hmm. And rather than saying, you know, I could predict, yes, it's going to repeat itself. It already is repeating itself in other areas. But what are the lessons learned for us? Well, I think we need to look beyond superficial solutions and really look at systemic change. What do I mean by that? So let's just start with the low-hanging fruit of the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. We need a healthcare system that is not profit-based. <laughs> it's going to reproduce the same inequalities over and over again. Don't hold, don't don't hold, don't, gonna... don't hold your breath on that one. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I'm just uh, I'm going to I'm going to quote um my my own mentors um Bruce, Bruce Lincoln, Joe Phelan, who coined the term fundamental causes of disease. And one of their predictions was, in a system of large social inequalities like we have in the United States, if you introduce a new biotech device or pharmaceutical uh, without addressing the social inequalities, you're going to widen rather than narrow the health outcome mm, gaps. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's exactly what we've seen with Suboxone, buprenorphine, the medical response to opioid overdose. We've actually seen an acceleration of overdose among whites, but particularly among black Americans and also indigenous Americans. So um, where I was going with this four waves of opioid crisis that has led us up to the fentanyl moment where, you know, heroin and fentanyl came in to um, a, a big market that was opened up by the pharmaceutical companies heavily marketing their opioids. What's happened is a reproduction of the very pattern with narcotics, lethal narcotics that we've seen play out over the centuries. Heroin itself was introduced in 1898 as a medication for white Victorian housewives who were morphine-dependent. So it was marketed by Bayer Pharmaceuticals as a non-addictive alternative to morphine. And with just about every wave of drug crisis that has ended up being seen as a black and brown crisis, let's take cocaine, for example, which which ended with crack cocaine but began with powder cocaine, some pioneering uh, marketers in Colombia uh, starting in the 70s. What we, what we see is actually not that the dangerous narcotics that are are uh, attributed to black and brown drug dealers starting there. It's actually that these products start with affluent white markets. And then over time, as the danger of those narcotics becomes publicly known and yeah. the crackdowns happen, they end up being located in black and brown low-income no, communities that can't, uh, that, that are sucked into the drug trade because of unemployment and, no. and not benefiting from the, the drug policy response. I hear that. So I, that's what's played out now. No, I get that. I get that. Um, when we come forward in our in our remaining moments with uh, with Dr. Hanson, I want to come right to this question because this is this is what under what, what underlies all of this for me is that the drama that we're dealing with today. Uh, and every time she says fentanyl, I think of my 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 friend Prince, and everybody knows that that's what took Prince out of here. Um, uh, but the, but the drama that we're dealing with right now with this drug crisis in America, fentanyl and heroin, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, was opened up by biotech. It was opened up by big pharma. That's that's the rub here, right? Um, that our healthcare industry is what opened the door up to the crisis, opened up that second, third, fourth wave 
uh, of market share that we're um, wrestling with right now. And I want to just close by asking what she makes of that, that the drama today was opened up by the industry itself. Our remaining moments with Dr. Helena Hansen when we come forward on KBLA Talk. You're listening to Dr. Helena Hansen on KBLA Talk. Her book is called White Out, How Racial Capitalism Changed the Color of Opioids in America. Uh, I've been delighted to have uh, learned so much from this conversation, Dr. Hansen. Let me close with this in the two minutes we have left. And that is what you make of the fact and how we, again, indict uh, the industry, uh, big tech and uh, biotech, I should say, and big pharma, uh, as the entities that really opened up the door to the drama we're dealing with right now with drugs in America. Thank you for that question. So it turns out in the book, I'm not, only, I'm not indicting pharma per se, because pharma is behaving the way that our racial capitalist system really directs it to. If you are in business to sell pharmaceuticals or healthcare devices, you're going to go for the market that you know can pay. You're going to use all of the techniques that you know are reliable within our racial, racial capitalist system. So, for example, marketing an, a new narcotic as safe because the consumers are quote-unquote safe and trustworthy, white right. consumers. So I think it helps to – when what I'm really – wanting to call attention to is the racial capitalist system itself within mm-hmm. our healthcare within which healthcare and pharma reside. It's useful to look at an alternate reality. And I'll give an example of France. Okay, so France is a country that the promoters of buprenorphine slash suboxone as a medicalized response to opioid addiction in the U.S. really turned to over and over again because France managed to reduce its overdose rate by 80% in the first five years after it legalized office-based buprenorphine, otherwise known as Suboxone. What they, what our U.S.-based colleagues always leave out of the picture is what else is going on in France, right? France is a country with universal health care, okay? It's universal health care. It's got a national health care system that never permitted the sale, definitely did not permit the direct-to-prescriber or consumer marketing of OxyContin and sister products, but those products were never approved in France. They weren't right. judged by the national body to even have any advantages and they're they over the other opioids and weren't judged as safe so they right. never had that but addiction treatment in france is is located in community-based centers that offer not only universal access to health care of all kinds but they also and and also buprenorphine methadone those treatments as well as harm reduction such as syringe exchange also supervised injection facilities but they offer Education. They offer help with childcare, with um, employment. They offer a lot of participation for people with a drug use history to yeah, be it's a, it's a hired as yeah, peer I'll, workers. Yeah. So yeah, it's a very po- holistic system right. within a country that ha- spends twice what we spend on social safety net and it. on education. Yep. Uh, I think I think those are the lessons. Um, that you are detailing now that our system at some point uh, had better learn sooner than later. But I, uh, I take, uh, I take your point. The book is called white out how racial capitalism changed the color of opioids in America. Uh, one of the authors of that book has been our guest in this hour, Dr. Helena Hanson, Dr. Hanson, I close where I began. Thank you for the research. Thank you for the work. And thank you so much for this conversation. We learned a lot and I thank you for your time. Thank you. All the best to you. Hour three of Tavis Smiley. After news, traffic, and sports, you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580.